Well, as is true every Easter, millions of Christians all over the world are celebrating their belief that Jesus the Messiah was raised from the dead that very first Easter Sunday. And his followers believe that he is very much alive today. And I certainly believe that. Gives us great hope, doesn't it? Great hope for our lives and for our future. Well, I'd like to read to you the account, the historical account that records the events that occurred beginning on that Friday, what we know as Good Friday. You know that it was earlier that day that Jesus of Nazareth was beaten and flogged and hung on a cross to die. And I want to pick up the narrative from Matthew 27, verse 57. So listen as I read. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. Note that laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. They went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And so now, Lord, through your spirit, speak to us this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, I'm, I'm talking to all of you gathered here today, but I want you to know that I especially have in mind those of you who came here to this Easter service today. But at this point in your life, you really wouldn't consider yourself to be a believer, You have your reasons. Maybe someone who was supposed to represent God to you didn't. Maybe they wounded you or disappointed you in some way or turned out to be a phony or a hypocrite. Sadly, that happens, right? 
Or maybe you've had questions about Jesus or Christianity or life or death or heaven or hell and you've not received any answers from people that were satisfactory to you. Or maybe things have happened in your life that soured you on God and caused you to turn away. And when I think of that, my mind goes to a man named C.S. Lewis. Familiar with him? He was the author of the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, books that became a, a movies. Maybe you didn't know this about C.S. Lewis, but for a good portion of his earlier life as a young adult, he was an atheist. His mother had died of cancer when he was about 15 years of age. And like some people who experienced tragedy in their lives, he became disenchanted with God. And he turned away from the Christian upbringing that he'd been given. His skepticism about God continued on for a number of years. And it occurs to me maybe that's where some of you are at today. Maybe you can relate. Maybe something horrible happened to you in your life or to someone that you love. And you wondered, where was God? If there is a God, where was he? And why didn't he stop this horrible thing from happening? And you found yourself turning away. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you're here and, and the way you're thinking is like this. Well, you know, what's all the fuss about, really? What's the big deal with Easter? Maybe earlier when we were singing, you saw people clapping and raising their hands and really getting into it. And you're thinking, weird people. What's wrong with you? Maybe you're thinking, I, I just don't really see how something that supposedly happened 2,000 years ago has anything to do with my life now. I get up every day, I go to work or school, I do my thing, I try to squeeze all the enjoyment I can out of each day of life, I try to be a good person, I think I'm good. What does an empty tomb back then have to do with me now? I guess I'm glad other people seem to be inspired by it, but it's not doing anything for me. Well, if any of these describe your thoughts today, I want you to know that you're in a good place. I'm glad you're here. I really am. But I do have two questions I'd like for you to consider today. The first is, what if it's true? What if it's true? That account I just read from the book of Matthew, what if it really happened the way that it was recorded there? What, what if it's true? And second... Beyond that, what if it matters for you? What if that event that was alleged to have occurred so long ago in another land really does matter for you here, now, today? What if it matters? Maybe in ways that you haven't thought much about. If you haven't yet pulled the little outline, the little study guide out of your worship folder, you can do that. That'll help you track with me and, and help you see where I'm going this morning. But if you're a person who has doubts about Christianity or about the Bible or about Jesus coming back to life, or if you just don't see how a 2,000-year-old event matters that much for you, I want to give you a few things to think about, okay? I'm going to share something with you that I hope is going to sway you a little into giving a little bit more credence to this notion that Jesus did actually come out of the grave. And then I'm going to suggest some implications that you really ought to give consideration to. If Jesus' tomb was really empty, including 
some that could impact your life today. So you ready for that? All right, here we go. First, did you know this? Did you know that nearly every credible historian around the globe accepts certain key facts about Jesus of Nazareth? I'm talking about people who are not friends of Christianity. Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the world's renowned experts on this topic, has cataloged the opinions of dozens of intellectuals, scholars, historians, philosophers, archaeologists, scientists, very smart people with lots of degrees behind their name. And even though most of them are not friends of Christianity, critics actually, nearly all of them have admitted these following six things. Number one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, that very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they thought were literal appearances of Jesus to them. Number three, that as a result, their lives were transformed, even to the point of being willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. Fourth, that these things were taught very early on, within a matter of just years of Jesus being killed. And number five, that James... That was Jesus' half-brother that grew up with Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with this perfect older brother who never did anything wrong? That was James, and the Bible tells us he was not a believer in his brother until he became a Christian due to his own experience of meeting a man that he believed to be his risen brother who had been executed. They admit that, and they admit number six, they concede that the Christian persecutor Saul of Tarsus, whose name was changed to Paul, also became a believer in Christ after a similar experience. Did you know this? Did you know? Were you aware that even hardened atheists, agnostic scholars, concede these six historical facts? So the question is, what's their explanation, right? How do they account? For these people's belief that they saw the risen Jesus, how do they account for their subsequent transformation from cowards into bold witnesses for Jesus who even became willing to die for their belief that Jesus was alive? Well, you know what many of these very smart scholars do? They kind of throw up their hands and say, we don't know what happened. It's obvious that something important happened, but we can't say what it is. We don't know what. They're afraid to admit what would appear to be the most logical explanation. Since they're scholars, they're very aware that over the past few centuries, all of the most popular theories, naturalistic theories put forward to explain these facts, all of them have been disproven, most of them in the 1800s, like the wrong tomb theory that the women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Jesus was over here buried, and they went to the wrong tomb that was empty. Like the stolen body theory, that under the cover of darkness, the disciples slunk down to the tomb, overpowered the Roman soldiers, pushed the stone away, grabbed the body of Jesus, parked it in Peter's garage or somewhere, and then went on to tell everybody that he was risen. There's that theory. There's the swoon theory that Jesus hanging on that cross didn't actually die, that he just swooned, and they buried him, and then in the cool of the tomb, he revived, pushed the stone out of the way, overpowered the Roman guards, and said, announced himself, I'm the Lord of life. There's the mass hallucination theory, 
to explain the appearances of Jesus, that everybody who saw Jesus walking around after he had died was hallucinating at the same time. There's the cognitive dissonance theory that holds that the way that the disciples coped with their grief and their trauma was to just go with the original narrative and act like it was true even though they knew it wasn't. There's the legend theory. All these theories were dismantled, most of them in the 1800s. So modern scholars don't go there anymore. They also know they can't just discredit the Bible because they have to admit there's far more historical support for the Scripture's reliability than there is for any other ancient text. They know that. Can you see that all of this puts these skeptics in a real bind, an intellectual conundrum? So what is the most reasonable explanation for these six historical facts, which are accepted by just about all historians? What theory best explains the complete turnaround of Jesus' disciples, of James, of Paul, all of whom became so convinced that they'd seen the risen Jesus that they chose to die rather than to deny it? I mean, is it really reasonable to just say, we don't know, something happened, we're not sure? I mean, is that really doing good history? Or could it be that Jesus of Nazareth, after having been executed and buried in a borrowed tomb, literally, bodily, miraculously came out of the grave three days later? Could that be what really happened? What if the most reasonable explanation for Jesus' empty tomb was exactly what Matthew recorded in his account? What if he and the other gospel writers, writers got it right? What if what Christians have been claiming for 2,000 years really did happen? What if it's true? You'll have to come to your own conclusion about this, but I do hope you'll give honest consideration to all of the evidence. Speaking of evidence, just kind of as an interesting side note here, an image is going to come up on the screen you guys know what this is? What is it? The Shroud of Turin. This is actually a photographic negative of it that, that makes the features more pronounced so you can see them. And of course, this is an ancient archaeological artifact. And the question is, was the man whose image is there on that shroud, was that man Jesus of Nazareth? And scholars have debated this, and scientists have poured over this thing, and, and the answer is maybe, possibly. Think about it. The most recent dating of this piece of linen cloth, 14 feet long, places it between 400 B.C. and 300 A.D., the most recent dating. There was a 1988 carbon dating that dated it much later, but that's been shown to be suspect. So that's in the range, right? Pollen particles found in the shroud are unique, interestingly enough, to the Middle East, the area where Jesus lived. If you look at it closely, you'll see the, the, the wound markings on the body. The unique wound markings on this image are consistent with what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, there were thousands of Jewish males crucified by the Romans around that time. What would set this apart? Well, it's the unique wound markings, like the puncture wounds in the forehead. That's interesting. I mean, how many other 
Jewish criminals of that era had a crown of thorns mashed on their forehead? How about the bloody wound in the, the, the right side there that you see? Puncturing between the rib cage there, that was not standard operating procedure for Roman crucifiers in that day. That was unique. And then there's the, the blood marks that appear undisturbed, not broken up or, or not smeared as would be expected if the shroud was pulled off or the body was pulled away from the shroud. The, the blood stains remain intact. That's interesting. Maybe you know that testing of shroud fibers revealed that the, the body that was, had contact with the shroud was not in any state of decomposition. It did not decompose at all, meaning that the body was only in contact with the shroud for a short time before the body decomposed. And then the image, the image on this shroud is very interesting. It appears to have been burned into the shroud, has a unique 3D quality to it, very unusual which undercuts those who claim that this was a medieval forgery. They didn't have the kind of technology to create that kind of an image. It's interesting, as I research this, some of the, the scientific examiners of the shroud have actually been bold enough to postulate that this image could have only uh, emerged like it has by a sudden burst of radiation. Hmm. Well, look, I don't know. I don't know that we can say... Uh, indisputably that, that this shroud was the burial cloth of Jesus, but it's mighty interesting, isn't it? You can research it more on your own. There's actually an app now. It's called Shroud 2.0. You can download it to your iPad or your device. I did yesterday. It's really cool. You can pour over all of the little individual markings on this shroud. Maybe you want to do some more investigation of that, but as intriguing as the shroud is, regardless of whether or not it actually was the burial cloth of Jesus, to me, all of the other evidence is overwhelming. I believe that Jesus actually came out of the grave and left his grave clothes there. <laughs> but you know what? Maybe you've already settled that question in your mind. Maybe you're a person. You've already settled the historical question. You're, you're okay with it. You're good with it. Maybe today where you're at is, so what? <laughs> so what? Why should I care, even if it did happen? Tell me why it matters for me today and for my life today. So let's think about that for a moment. And several things come to mind. See if you agree with me about some of the implications if it really did happen. First, to me it seems obvious there's a logical implication here of an empty tomb because if the tomb is empty, wouldn't that mean that Jesus has power over death? I mean, it has to at least mean that, right? So if death had 50 kilotons of power, then Jesus had to have at least 51 kilotons of power, right? He overcame the grave. It has to at least mean that, that he has more power than death has. The grave might have been strong, but Jesus is stronger. And the Bible agrees. It says the tomb could not keep him contained. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, literally the birth pangs of death, because it was not possible. It was not possible for him to be held by it. What that tells us is that the grave could no more hold Jesus than a pregnant woman in labor can hold that baby inside of her womb. Life has to emerge. It has to come out. 
And in Jesus' case, the life inside of him overpowered death, the forces of death. What's the implication? If he can raise himself, he can raise you. Because I live, he said, you also will live. He can raise your grandmother who passed away. He can raise your sibling who died. He can raise your child who was taken from you. Because I live, you also will live. It's good news. There's a second implication. This one is more historical. Think about it. An empty tomb means that Jesus did what no one else in history has ever done. He predicted his own death and resurrection and then did it. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to predict in advance your own death. I mean, many people have done that and carried it out. Wouldn't you agree it's quite another thing to predict your own resurrection and then do it? Who else in history has accomplished that feat? Nobody that I'm aware of. Did you catch in Matthew's account that the people back then clearly understood that Jesus had predicted that he would come alive again? The Jewish priest went to Pilate that Saturday, right? And they said, hey, remember that imposter? That imposter Jesus said he would rise from the dead after three days, so let's seal that tomb up right now so that no one can say that it happened. They, they had heard Jesus say, destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. They had heard Jesus say, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up again. It wasn't hazy in their minds what he'd said, like it is to some people today. So an important implication of Jesus' empty tomb is that Jesus is unique among all the founders of world religions. He stands alone in predicting and accomplishing his own death and his own resurrection. You can look it up. No such claim was made by any of the other founders, and all of their tombs remain, shall we say, occupied. <laughs> Jesus stands alone. And then there's a philosophical implication of the empty tomb. Think about this. If Jesus' tomb is empty, if he literally rose from the dead, does that not mean, does it not follow that serious Truth-seekers should not dismiss Jesus, but should listen to what he has to say, right? Because of his uniqueness, in their search for ultimate reality, they would be wise to at least explore and consider what Jesus said about himself, about God, about life, death, eternity. My philosophy professor in graduate school used to say this. He used to say, reasonable people owe it to, him, to themselves to at least consider the claims of this resurrected man. And he's right. It'd be a foolish thing, wouldn't it? Given this man's reported resurrection, his widely respected teachings on ethics, respected universally all over the world, his massive influence in the world, it would be foolish for anybody to just write Jesus off as insignificant or irrelevant or not worth paying attention to. That would be akin to committing intellectual suicide, would it not? Wouldn't everybody on the planet be smart to at least give some serious consideration to the things that Jesus said about how we got here, where we came from, what our purpose is, what God is like, what God's plan is for humanity and how we can align our hearts and our lives with his plan? 
I mean, given what's known about Jesus of Nazareth, wouldn't that be important for every single person to look into? And I challenge you to do that if you're a skeptic here today, if you're a doubter. C.S. Lewis, after years of struggling with this intellectually, could not escape the conclusion of his own investigation. One night, after long hours of conversation with his good friend, J.R. Tolkien, heard of him? Did you know those two guys were contemporaries? They were friends. The Hobbit, right? Lord of the Rings. Man, those guys must have had some interesting conversations, <laughs> creating worlds together. Well, one night, they talked long into the night, and uh, when they were done, Lewis finally came to believe in Jesus Christ albeit reluctantly. For C.S. Lewis, converting to Christianity was a battle, a struggle. He would write about it in his book, Surprised by Joy. Listen, he said this, You must picture me alone in that room at Oxford, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, my studies, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. God was pursuing C.S. Lewis, and he knew it. He felt it. Something in him wanted to resist, to stay angry with that God that he was so mad at for not existing. But the Lord, the patient yet relentless Lord, would not be dissuaded, would not turn away. And he reached this man's heart, and finally Lewis could resist no longer. And it occurs to me that maybe that's where you've been at in your life. Maybe, like C.S. Lewis, you've had that impulse to stiff-arm God and keep him at a distance, even though you know he's after you. And I, I just want to ask you, how long will you try and keep God at arm's length? How long? How long will you keep pushing him away when you know he's after you? And what do you fear losing if you were to yield? What do you fear is going to be taken away from you if you should become a believer? Is it your freedom? Well, we'll talk about that in a few moments here. The empty tomb means it's critical that, that each and every one of us gets serious about looking more intently into this man, Jesus. Later on in his life, C.S. Lewis would concur. He wrote this, listen, Christianity, if false if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's the ball game. He was right. It matters. It matters for you and you and you and you. It really does. One reason this is so crucial is because of a fourth implication of Jesus' empty tomb. This is a theological one, and we like theology around here. The theological implication is this. An empty tomb means that God the Father was satisfied with Christ's atonement for sin. His raising up of Jesus demonstrated this to be true. So here's something to discuss with your Christian friend, maybe who invited you today, your, your trusted Christian friend, Ask them this question sometime. What was Jesus' death really all about? Hopefully they'll be able to give you a, 
coherent answer to that. What was it about? What, what was it mainly all about? Was it mainly about the Romans getting rid of a political threat? Was it mainly about the Jews doing away with a, a blasphemer, a religious outsider who was bent on humiliating them? Was Jesus' death basically just the unfortunate result of mob violence? Or was something deeper going on? Was something more significant, more spiritual happening on that cross? You see, Christians believe something the Bible clearly teaches. Namely, that a substitution was taking place there on that cross. An innocent person was taking the place of the guilty. A righteous person was taking the place of unrighteous people being judged in their place, serving the sentence they deserved. Anybody who wants to become a Christian must grasp this notion of substitution and the motive behind it, which is love. Love. Anyone wanting to become a Christian must also have some grasp of the theological implication of Jesus being raised to life three days later do you remember what Jesus cried out on the cross when his life was ebbing away? Those three words, do you remember? It is finished. And maybe you as a doubting person hear that and say, well, what? What was finished? You talking about his life? My life is over? Let me tell you what was finished. His work of providing atonement was completed. Of offering himself as the payment for countless sins committed by humanity. His blood spilled out on that Good Friday was what it cost God the Father to be able to forgive our sins and still be righteous. He had to punish sin. He just chose to punish His own Son in your place and in my place. And to demonstrate that that payment, that blood payment was acceptable, God raised Jesus to life again. And so Jesus' death said it is finished. And Jesus' resurrection says it is enough. It's enough. His shed blood was enough. He's alive. The inescapable ramification of the empty tomb, number five, is that Jesus is alive. Alive. That's right. He died only once, not twice. There's no record of Jesus of Nazareth ever dying again. You know, dying, raised, dying again. No. The Bible tells us that 50 days after his resurrection, he ascended back up into heaven from where he had come originally. And that he is alive to this very day. Like right now, like alive, like... Here, through His Spirit, do you sense Him? Do you, do you feel Jesus' presence? Alive today and at work. Working to accomplish His purposes in the world and in the universe. In your own investigation of Christianity, you're going to have to come to your own conclusion about this. I just want to be clear. This is what Christians believe and this is what the Bible teaches, that by virtue of his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth is now the living Lord 
who towers over all of human history and is in fact guiding it towards his purposes and not just human history, but your history and my history. He's alive. And that brings us to a final implication of his empty tomb, a personal one. An empty tomb means that this risen living Lord Jesus is able to continue his ministry of liberation in your life. His ministry of liberation. What he began when he was here physically on the earth, he continues to this day still working through his spirit, still working through his word, still working through his people, the church. He's doing a lot of things, let me tell you. But the one I'm honing in on is his work, his joyful work of releasing people from bondage. He loves doing that. He's been doing it for a long time. He's an expert at it, a specialist at it. The testimony of the Bible again and again is that Jesus is our ultimate freedom fighter because he is alive. He once said this about himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. There it is, freedom fighter. Recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. On one occasion, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Did you know that? Oh, we think we can dabble around in sin, right, and control it. Oh, no. Sin has cords. Sin has chains. John 8, 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the Freedom Fighters Manifesto. I came to set you free. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery because you've been released from that. I love this church. It's really my family and has been for years. There's a lot of ways I like to think about the church, but one way I think about the people who make up this body of believers is that really we're a collection of people who, who have been and who are being emancipated from the enslavements that imprisoned us, right? And maybe you hear that and you go, what, what enslavements? What prisons? Well... First and foremost, the prison of guilt and condemnation from having broken God's holy law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We broke God's law by our sinful rebellion, by wanting to be our own God, by living our lives apart from His authority. But when we fully trusted in Jesus' sacrifice for us, Jesus in that moment released us from the eternal judgment that we deserve because of our sin. In other words, he pardoned us. He granted us full pardon. Wiped the slate clean. No longer holds our sins against us. That's a blanket pardon, and that's really good news. That's really good news. 
So Jesus, Jesus freed us from condemnation and judgment and the slavery to sin. But you know what else? His liberating work doesn't end there. He continues to work tirelessly to free his people from lots of things. Loosening the grip of sinful addictions that dominate our lives. Freeing us from self-focused, self-centered living that causes us to ignore the pain of other people. He works to deliver us from the strongholds that we constructed in our own minds by swallowing the lies of Satan about God and about ourselves. Jesus wants to blow the doors off those prisons and set his people free. He wants to shatter the chains of bitterness, the acid of bitterness that's been eating away at our souls, unforgiveness towards people who have wounded us and hurt us in our past. Some of you have been in chains, you've been imprisoned by that resentment. For years, he wants to set you free. He wants to liberate us from the shackles of regret at having made poor decisions in our lives. Anybody made poor decisions in your life that you regret? Any regrets? And the shame that often rolls over us as a result and the enemy uses to bring us down to despair. Jesus aims to set us free from aimless wandering in our lives, walking through life with no purpose. Because he's become our peace, he's able to free us from fears about the future. Some of these shackles fall to the ground in a moment. With others, he takes us through a process, right? But the trajectory of our lives is towards freedom. Jesus is writing a freedom story on each of our hearts. I want to share with you a few such stories from some people who or right here in this congregation, maybe sitting among us right now. I want you to listen to the story of Philip. Philip says, My story started at a very young age when I made one wrong decision that started me down the path to an addiction to pornography. That addiction became so strong that I would find myself viewing pornography for hours at a time. It got to where I didn't feel there was going to be any fun in my day unless porn was somehow involved. The devil had me bound up in this for more than 15 years. One of the effects pornography has on men is that it makes our self-worth crumble, especially around women. It holds shame over our heads, making it almost impossible to connect with people, especially women, in a healthy way. But I can now say that by the power of Jesus, I am two years porn-free, and I have never gone back. Yes, it's true, I still deal with the after effects of it, like struggling with what people think about, about me. But at the recent men's encounter, that's an event that we host here at New Life, God showed me that what other people think shouldn't matter so much to me. I was able to bring up my issue to others. And now I've been able to start on the path towards changing my thinking and being content in who God made me to be. I know I'm not going to change overnight, but I've made progress and God is changing me every day. I thank Jesus for the freedom that he's giving me. Amen. Alex wrote this. In my life, I've had a tendency to base my self-worth on how the people around me viewed me. Anybody else struggle with that? Because I was alone a lot, I assumed that I, something must be wrong about me. For many moments, I didn't even like myself. One day I ended up coming to New Life Church with a friend and uh, I was looking at the tear-off, the little tear-off flap in the worship folder 
and I saw the box you check if you want more information about getting involved in a small group, and I decided this is something I wanted to look into. But as I did, the person I came with said, don't check that box, they're going to call you. (laughs) In that moment, I felt some pressure, but I still went through with it. In my heart, I knew I was doing the right thing that God wanted me to do. As I started to feel more comfortable at New Life, I did actually end up joining a small group. I also got close with another ministry partner of the church who really invested in me and taught me more about Jesus. Are you seeing a pattern here that God uses other people to aid our freedom? She says, I started diving deeper into the Word of God, coming to more celebrations, meeting more of God's people as I did. I started to feel that void getting smaller. And the feelings of loneliness starting to go away. And I eventually learned something that truly set me free. I learned that as a believer in Jesus Christ, my identity is now in Him, and He loves me no matter what. Have you discovered that yet? I learned that I am who He created me to be. When I accepted the fact that I don't have to be someone who fits in or acts a certain way, I felt my burdens lift, and I was set free from all of my anxieties and pressure to gain other people's approval. Jesus accepts me as I am. Now being a Christian and worshiping our righteous, ever-forgiving God is an amazing thing. A young man named Zach wrote this. He said, God recently revealed a bondage in my life. I was at a men's event and the Holy Spirit began to, to stir up in the room. And I saw that the other guys were moved by it. Then I felt something stirring up in me. I remember I was going to try to say something to to help another guy, but as I did, something else happened. When I spoke, Jesus broke me from chains of my own guilt. I'd been held in shame for a long time because of sinful things I did in my past. But in that moment, with 12 hands laying on my shoulders and arms and my head bowed, the prayers of the small group of men allowed the Holy Spirit to move mountains in my life. My hands that had been clenched in a fist were suddenly opened up, I literally felt the peace of God. I love those men for their prayers, and now I know that God is amazing. Finally, a young woman named Megan wrote this. I've struggled with body image and eating disorders for more than 20 years. My own mother battled with her own weight for most of my childhood and was often critical of my sister and I in this area. The message I got from her was that I wasn't right the way that I was. She and the messages I got from the media every day impressed on me that my worth as a person and my happiness in life was very much tied to the shape and size of my body. Problem was, no matter what size I was, I was never deemed to be just right. I was always too much of one thing and not enough of another. I started to internalize all this and came to believe that something was wrong with me. My response was to pull inward, to hide who I really was and not let other people in. I turned to the one thing I knew or thought I could control, my own body. I learned to use my body as a tool, as something to create an identity around, a way to be a somebody when I felt like a nobody. Eventually, I was diagnosed with anorexia and depression, and at that point, I knew I needed help. So I sought out someone to work with me to help me unpack my past and dig deeper, which really helped And then one Sunday in the fall of 2016, I came to New Life Church, and Jared was leading worship. I don't remember the exact name of the song that we were going to sing, but Jared prayed for us that the song would speak to everyone right where they're at. 
Then the lyrics came up on the screen and the word shame appeared and practically jumped out at me. In that moment, I felt God speaking to me that it was shame that I had felt for all these years and been hiding behind that kept me from sharing myself with others. I'd allowed it to bottle up the real me, the girl and the woman that God created me to be. I wasn't revealing that to others because I'd been afraid of being rejected and being unloved. I had actually in my life allowed other people to use me and mistreat me because I didn't feel worthy of anything else. I kept very tight control of my life and what others could see, kept myself at a distance emotionally, even from the people I love the most, because I thought if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. But recently, by His grace, the Lord has blessed me with newfound freedom. Freedom to be me. He enabled me to drop the chains of guilt and shame that have shackled me for so long. I've finally been able to open up, share my story, be vulnerable and transparent, even when it's not comfortable or when it's scary, to be the mess that I am without judgment and shame. And what have I learned through all of this? That the Lord is faithful. And that He can restore even the most broken of people. I openly admit I'm not healed of all of my issues, but I joyfully stand in the freedom from guilt and shame that plagued me for so long. Freedom and healing is a lifelong train ride with the final destination being heaven. Only God knows how far I am away from that final destination, but I'm happy to say that I'm finally on board the train. Listen, Jesus is the chain breaker. He is alive. He has the power to release us from the shackles that have bound us for so long. And as you saw, he often uses others in the family of God in that process. I'm going to ask our choir to return right now. They've got a great song they're going to sing for us in just a few moments. I know it's going to bless you. As they do, I want you to think about what you've heard this morning. Because I believe there's a next step for you in your own journey towards freedom through Jesus. I wonder, what, what's had you in chains in your life? What's kept you bound up and, and confined? What's imprisoned you in your life? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it people-pleasing? Is it shame? What is that thing that you would love for Jesus to set you free from? There's a little box on the bottom of your outline on the back side. Maybe you'd want to just take a moment and, and write in there. If you can identify it, can you put words to it? Because I want to pray for you in just a moment. Jesus would love to set you free. That's what he does. Let's pray together. Before I pray for all of us with your heads bowed, I wonder how many of you would just look up at me and say, Steve, I think God is talking to me today about my life. Would you just look up at me? God's talking to me about my life, yeah. Yes, yeah, many, many of us. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. I wonder if there are some who would say, you know what, I, I came in today with some doubts, but I think I'm going to walk out a believer. I think I'm going to walk out of here as a believer. If that's you, would you just look up at me as well? Yeah. Amen. Maybe um, you have felt bound, chained, and you're being prompted by the Lord today to begin to ask Jesus 
to free you up from that thing that has been incarcerating you, imprisoning you for years. And, and by faith, you're going to reach out to Jesus today and say, Jesus, set me free. Set me free, please. I believe in you. I believe you're alive. Work in my life to set me free. If that's you, would you raise your hands all around the room? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Maybe some of you need to do what C.S. Lewis did. God got him there where he just let go of his doubts and just accepted that Jesus died for his sins, believe that he's alive, and maybe today you're saying, I'm going to stop trying to be my own Savior, and I'm going to trust in Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. And you can right where you sit, and I hope that you will. You can really say it like this, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he will. You can just pray that. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for that substitution that took place on his cross. And thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you that his blood was enough to pay for our sins and that we can be freed from eternal judgment and freed from those sins and chains that have kept us bound for so long. Set people free even today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.